The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage that we come to is Genesis chapter 40, verse 1 through chapter 41, verse 45. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven crows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other crows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other crows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin crows, or cows, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I was told by my coworker this week that I was bad at reading, and it's clearly true. Uh, And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up by the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh said and called called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out out of the pit. And when he had shaved shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of of you that when you hear a dream, you you can interpret it. Joseph answered, Pharaoh, it is not in me. God God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh... Pr- Proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? in whom is the Spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only 
as regards the throne, will I be greater than you? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Matt. Let's pray this morning. Uh, Father, we come to you with uh, all kinds of needs. But we believe that by your spirit and through your word that you can minister to every need that we have. So please do that. And uh, above all, draw us into a deeper relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One thing that we all have in common is that there are aspects of our lives quite often that just aren't what we want them to be, right? We, from time to time, go through things that we wouldn't ordinarily choose to go through, but that we nevertheless find ourselves facing. Uh, For example, just a few weeks ago, uh, my family had about six or seven uh, different things that broke and uh, needed to be replaced. Uh, it began with me noticing that there was a small kind of a hole in my shed roof. So, of course, I had to get shingles and replace the, the whole roof. And then uh, our refrigerator broke. So we had to get a new refrigerator and live out of a cooler for several days. Then we had a, a valve on our toilet break, which brought to our attention that the emergency shutoff for our entire house uh, needed to be replaced as well. So we did that, and then some costly car repairs and van repairs, and uh, I think a couple other things as well. Uh, And I'll be honest that throughout this one to two week period, my attitude wasn't always the best. Uh, You know, I really wasn't planning on spending all that time and all that money on all those repairs. It, It was kind of frustrating. And yet, of course, uh, these things that I just mentioned are really only minor irritations compared to some of the other things that we face from time to time. We sometimes face things that are a lot more difficult, such as the loss of a loved one, a serious illness, an unhappy marriage, or even divorce, the loss of a job, a traumatic experience, Heavy caregiving responsibilities for a sick or elderly family member. Significant pressures and challenges at work. Domestic abuse. Struggles with infertility or miscarriage. Parenting challenges. Social isolation or loneliness. Estrangement from friends or family members. Financial hardships. Struggles with depression or anxiety. On and on, of course, we could go. There are all kinds of different things that we wouldn't ordinarily choose to face, but that we nevertheless find ourselves facing. And it's natural for us to wonder, like, why? Is there any reason or purpose for these things? Now, if we're operating according to a secular worldview... It's difficult to escape the conclusion that the answer is no. 
I mean, there's no purpose at all for the trials we face. There really can't be if God doesn't exist. And so all the suffering we experience is random and meaningless at the end of the day. And so we just have to try our best to think positive thoughts and you know, make the most of whatever situation in which we find ourselves. That's all that someone with a secular worldview really can do. And yet the Bible presents us with a much different picture of reality. It teaches us that our pain does have a purpose, even if we can't always understand exactly what that purpose is. A sovereign God is orchestrating the events of our lives according to his perfect plan to accomplish glorious things. And one of the places where we see that most clearly illustrated is in the story of Joseph. If you've attended here the past few weeks, you may recall how Joseph was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and wound up in the household of a powerful Egyptian official named Potiphar. Then when Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of trying to rape her, Potiphar had him thrown into prison. And yet here in Genesis 40 and 41, we see that God hasn't left Joseph, but is actually working behind the scenes in a spectacular way. We're told in Genesis, 20, or Genesis 40, verses 1 through 4, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. So these two men, the chief cupbearer and the baker, were highly trusted officials and had unique access to the king. And they both wound up in prison with Joseph. The passage then goes on to record how uh, the both of them have dreams and how Joseph interprets their dreams for them. He predicts, based on their dreams, that the cupbearer will be restored to his office, but that the baker will be executed. And that's exactly what happens. We read in verses 21 through 23 that Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So even though Joseph had specifically asked the cupbearer to remember him, after being restored to his position, the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph. And he just leaves him languishing there in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And that's where Joseph stays for two additional years. And I think we could accurately say that this is rock bottom for Joseph. His life has spiraled further and further downward from being sold into slavery by his brothers to being falsely accused and unjustly imprisoned to now being forgotten by someone who probably could have done something to help him. 
Joseph is now at his lowest low. And there's an important principle here that we don't want to miss. Before God uses you in a great way, he first humbles you. Humility is a prerequisite to true greatness. And as impressive as Joseph's moral character has been, we've seen that pride was probably an issue for him. If you remember back to chapter 37, Joseph had dreams of his brothers bowing down to him. And in light of the fact that his brothers were already jealous of him, since he was, after all, daddy's favorite, the wise thing for Joseph to do would probably have been to maybe keep his dreams to himself. Yet do you think Joseph was able to do that? Not at all. Instead, on two separate occasions, uh, we see that he went on and on about these dreams he had of his brothers bowing down to him. It seems that he just couldn't help but share all the details with them. And so Joseph, I think we could say, seems to have a bit of a pride problem. And that's why God has to humble him here in chapter 40. God knew that before Joseph could handle greatness, he first needed to learn humility. And the same is true of us today. Then crossing over into chapter 41, we read about two dreams that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has in the same night. The first dream features seven gaunt and ugly cows eating Seven well-fed and attractive cows. And uh, that's followed by a second dream, which features seven thin and blighted ears of grain swallowing up seven full and healthy ears of grain. After that, Pharaoh wakes up and is deeply troubled as he wonders what these dreams mean. And he can't find anyone who knows how to interpret them. Eventually, though, the cupbearer remembers that Joseph is able to interpret dreams. So the cupbearer tells Pharaoh about Joseph. We then read in verses 14 and 15, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit, out of the prison. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So in the subsequent verses, Pharaoh describes his dreams to Joseph, and Joseph interprets them. He explains how the two dreams are actually referring to the same reality, namely that there will be seven years of a rich and plentiful harvest throughout the land of Egypt, but that those seven years of plenty will be followed by seven additional years of severe famine. Then in verses 33 through 36, Joseph suggests a course of action. He says, now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. 
We then read in verses 37 through 44 that this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. I guess that's like Air Force Two. I don't know. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And that's how Joseph came to be what we might call the prime minister or the second in command over the entire land of Egypt. Understand that Egypt was the most powerful kingdom that had existed in the history of the world. Up to that point in time. And Joseph was now right there at the top of it. Second only to the king. Who could have guessed that Joseph's unjust imprisonment was not only something God was able to overcome, but was actually the very thing that God used to place Joseph where he wanted Joseph to be. And so we see that God had a marvelous purpose for Joseph's imprisonment. That's the main idea of these two chapters. God had a marvelous purpose for Joseph's imprisonment. God was working behind the scenes of Joseph's circumstances the whole time. From Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery, to the false accusations of Potiphar's wife, to the unjust imprisonment. That Joseph suffered. God was working in and through it all to form Joseph into the man he wanted Joseph to be and ultimately to make Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. What a spectacular display of God's wisdom and power. And just as God used the trials of Joseph's life to accomplish his glorious purposes, he, of course, uses the trials in our lives to accomplish his purposes as well. And these purposes include a wide array of different things, many of which are greater and higher than we can comprehend. And yet one of the more fundamental purposes God has in our suffering is to form us and shape us into who he wants us to be. In fact, we can rest assured that whatever we go through is specifically designed, it's engineered by God to be exactly what we need. Each trial is tailor-made for us. In some ways, it's kind of like a personalized fitness plan. You know, if you go to a personal trainer and ask them to help you get more physically fit, you know, they're going to begin by doing a thorough assessment of you. 
And then, based on that information, they'll design a, a fitness plan that's specifically for you. Something that's appropriate for your current physical condition and that aligns with your goals. That whole process is customized around you. It's all designed to be exactly what you need in order to help you become more physically fit. And in a similar manner, God designs our circumstances to accomplish his purposes within us, such as helping us develop godly character and teaching us to rely on his strength instead of our own and purging our hearts of everything that stands in the way of our conformity to Christ. God did that in Joseph's life, and he, did, he does that in our lives. And because of God's infinite wisdom and goodness and sovereignty, we can be confident that not one bit of the suffering we experience is ever wasted. There's no such thing as senseless suffering or trials without purpose. Let me read to you the words of a hymn we've sung several times at our church entitled, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. This hymn was written by John Newton, who, as some of you may know, also wrote Amazing Grace, which is probably the most uh, famous hymn in the English language. Yet he also wrote this other song, and it's wonderful. Newton writes, I asked the Lord that I might grow, in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. So Newton's saying that he prayed for spiritual growth and a deeper understanding of the gospel and a, a greater desire for God. And in praying for these things, he hoped that God would answer his prayer in one glorious moment and simply impart these things to him. But... That's not what God did, is it? Now, it says that God laid him low. God 
answered his prayer. Not in a glorious moment of spiritual ecstasy, but rather by allowing suffering to come into John Newton's life. That's the way God works. God uses suffering to accomplish things within us that simply couldn't be accomplished any other way. And if we could only remember that and embrace that, I believe it would be an indescribable comfort to us in the midst of the difficult seasons that we find ourselves going through. In addition, as we look at our main passage in Genesis 40 and 41, we see how God used Joseph's imprisonment not only to accomplish certain things in Joseph's heart, but also ultimately as a means of placing Joseph into a very strategic position as prime minister of Egypt. And the reason this position was so strategic is because of the famine that was coming and the way that famine would affect not only Egypt, but also that entire region of the world, including Joseph's family in the land of Canaan. This becomes clear in Genesis 45, 5 through 7, where Joseph says to his brothers, who by that point had come to Egypt to buy food, he says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to, that's a purpose statement, right? To preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So Joseph understood that God had orchestrated the events of his life and made him prime minister of Egypt for the specific purpose of leading the Egyptians to store up grain during those years of plenty so that not only the Egyptians, but also Joseph's own family would have enough grain during the years of famine. Essentially, God was saving Joseph's family from starvation. That's the reason God brought Joseph down to Egypt. That's the reason he allowed all those difficult things to happen to Joseph. And ultimately, that's the reason why God allowed Joseph and placed Joseph into that position of such power and influence. And that's a great reminder that God has us where he has us for a reason. God's placed us where he's placed us for a reason. God's given us the influence he's given us for a reason. So think about where you are and the opportunities for influence you have. God's placed you in a particular family, a particular circle of friends, a particular workplace, a particular neighborhood, and in other very particular spheres of influence for a reason. Like none of these things is accidental. They're all very deliberate. So think about why God has you right where you are. Think about the unique opportunities for spiritual influence and meaningful ministry 
that you have? Are you taking advantage of those? Are you being a faithful steward of the opportunities for influence and ministry God's given you? You know, maybe you're not a huge fan of your job. Some jobs are just like that. But think about why God has you working that job. What coworkers do you have that seem to be open to friendship or perhaps are in need of some kind of a support through a particular season of their life? Or maybe are even open to an evangelistic Bible study? Or perhaps you have some neighbors who get on your nerves sometimes. Well, think about why God has you in such close proximity to them. And what opportunities he's given you to maybe invite them over for dinner sometimes and begin to build a friendship with them. None of our circumstances are accidental. Each one is orchestrated by a sovereign God for a specific purpose. In addition, as we think about the story of Joseph and how God used Joseph in such a marvelous way, it shows that God can use anyone. And not only is he able to use anyone, he often chooses to use those of us who are rather, let's say, unimpressive from a worldly perspective in order to make it clear that it's by his power that things are accomplished. And Joseph was certainly no exception. I mean, think about who Joseph was and where he came from. Joseph was basically a nobody, especially by Egyptian standards. The very fact that Joseph was a Hebrew would ordinarily exclude him from any social prominence or political power at all. In fact, the second part of Genesis 43, 32 states that Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. It was taboo, for that is an abomination, it says, to the Egyptians. So that's how despised Hebrews were in Egyptian society. Yet God, nevertheless, chose to use Joseph in an extraordinary way in order to accomplish marvelous things. And God does the same with people today. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I'm reminded of the way the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon came to faith. Spurgeon, as some of you may know, is undoubtedly one of the most uh, famous preachers of all time. Uh, Perhaps even the most famous uh, prior to the ministry of Billy Graham. And so he was certainly a man whose ministry and impact was felt around the world. 
Yet I've always found it interesting how Spurgeon came to faith. He grew up in a Christian home, but uh, didn't initially have much interest in religious things. He attended church not because he genuinely wanted to, but simply because he thought it was the proper thing to do. So one Sunday, what happened to be New Year's Day, when Spurgeon was 15 years old, he set out to attend the church he normally attended off and on. However, because the wintry weather was pretty severe that day, he decided that he didn't feel like walking the rest of the way to that church. So he instead ducked into a smaller uh, storefront type of church, mainly because he desired to get out of the cold. Spurgeon writes, When I could go no further in the wintry weather, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist church. The preacher who was supposed to have conducted the service never got there because he was held up by the weather. And quickly, one of the church officers had to be brought forward to conduct the service with a congregation of perhaps 15 people. The man was really stupid. Uh, that's Spurgeon's words, not mine. Uh, his text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he just kept repeating it because he had nothing else to say. However, um, something about Spurgeon apparently caught this preacher's eye. And the preacher said, young man, you look very miserable. And miserable in life and miserable in death you will be if you don't obey my text. He then shouted, young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. I looked, writes Spurgeon. And then and there, the cloud was gone, and the darkness rolled away. And that moment, I saw the sun, spelled S-O-N, as a reference to Jesus. So the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, often referred to as the prince of preachers, uh, got, his, got his sermons, 65 volumes of sermons over the course of his ministry. This great preacher came to faith through what must have been one of the most basic sermons of all time, delivered by one of the most unimpressive preachers of all time. Remember that the sermon consisted of a single verse that was just repeated over and over again by a preacher that Spurgeon describes as stupid. And I don't think Spurgeon was trying to be condescending in describing that, uh, the man with that word, but was simply describing in a very literal way, according to the conventional 19th century vocabulary, how limited the man's intelligence seemed to be. And yet, God used that simple, unimpressive man in a remarkable way. And friends, God uses us as well. You know, maybe you're, you're tempted to think that you're too ordinary to do anything of much spiritual significance, right? Maybe you don't possess an obvious teaching gift or any of the other spiritual gifts that often get the spotlight. Or maybe you haven't accumulated a whole lot of Bible knowledge yet. You know, you've never you've been to seminary or received any formal theological training or 
anything like that, and you just feel inadequate in that area. Listen, it doesn't matter. God used Joseph in our main passage. God used that unnamed preacher that Spurgeon listened to as a 15-year-old boy. And he can use you as well. In fact, in light of what we just read, still displayed on the screen up there in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, it would seem that the more ordinary you are, the more likely it is that God will use you in a significant way. Listen, as long as you have a sound grasp of the gospel, it is way more important to have a heart that's on fire for God than any of those other things that most people in this world would consider to be impressive things. A heart that's on fire for God is way more important than a seminary education. I believe in seminary. It's way more important than a brilliant intellect. It's way more important than charisma or anything of the sort. The man or woman who might seem to be ordinary on the outside, but who is consumed with a passion for God, has way more potential to make it a, a spiritual impact, a gospel impact, than the person who might have several impressive things on their spiritual resume, but who lacks that burning desire to see God glorified. So don't doubt that God can use you and that he will use you if you'll devote yourself wholeheartedly to him. And surrender to his purposes for your life. Yet as we think about how God used Joseph in such a wonderful way in the book of Genesis. Our examination of Joseph wouldn't be complete if we didn't also consider the one that Joseph was intended to foreshadow. And that, of course, is Jesus. Like Joseph... Jesus is described in Scripture as the uniquely loved son of his father. Yet just as God allowed Joseph to be severely tested and tempted in Potiphar's house by the wife of Potiphar, God also allowed Jesus to be tested and tempted in the desert by Satan himself. In addition, just as Joseph's jealous brothers had previously betrayed him, by selling him into slavery, Jesus also was betrayed by one of his closest associates, Judas Iscariot, into the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. Then, after being unjustly arrested, Jesus was accused by false witnesses of crimes he didn't commit. Again, much like Joseph. This led to Jesus being crucified on a Roman cross, arguably one of the cruelest and most agonizing forms of execution ever devised. Yet through it all, God was working to save his people. Just as God used Joseph to save his family from starvation, God used 
Jesus to save his people from their sins. See, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was dying in our place with our sins on his shoulders. That means the judgment and the wrath of God that should have come down on you and me came down on Jesus instead. Then after that, Jesus was resurrected from the dead and was subsequently exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Just as, again, Joseph was brought out of his imprisonment and was exalted to, we might say, the right hand of Pharaoh. Then later in life, Joseph would forgive his brothers for their sin against him. Just as Jesus offers forgiveness to everyone who will put their trust in him to rescue them from their sin. So we've seen in Genesis 40 and 41 how God had a marvelous purpose for Joseph's imprisonment and for every other aspect of Joseph's life as well. God was using all these things Joseph went through in order to accomplish something glorious. And yet all these, as all these parallels between Joseph and Jesus make clear, the whole story of Joseph is ultimately intended to direct our attention to something exponentially more glorious that God accomplished through Jesus, namely rescuing us from our sins.